Hey, everybody. Welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm Brandon David. Great show. A little bit different this week. We have co-host Ben Kovacs. Uh, always got a cynical, smart little addition to add. So nice to have him back on the podcast. Uh, but the guest this week is Jason of Pedal Fast, which is growing very, very quickly. Uh, and they have layered on top of Nabis, which you might remember was the distribution company, been on the show maybe a year or two years ago. They've layered on a sales uh, team and marketing team on top of that. So sort of splitting up that margin. We talk a lot about the different models there and how they're sustainable, what he learned from alcohol, what he learned from being a part of Kushco. Uh, it's a really great episode that Ben and I do together. Uh, I learned a ton. You're going to learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Hey guys, if you like the episode, do me a favor, just write a quick review. It really helps us and it's uh, pretty easy. Thanks. Jason, so nice to have you with us, man. Uh, and our first kind of double team here, as we said before, with Ben Kovacs. What's up, man? Nice to have you as well. Yeah, thanks for having me again, Brandon. Jason, I think Pedal Fast is a name that a lot of people are talking about right now, but I like to hear it from the uh, originator. How do you describe what Pedal Fast is? Sure. Thanks for having me again, Brandon. Um, you know, Pedal Fast is, um, you know, like all businesses that, that an entrepreneur starts, you have some sort of thesis. Sometimes you get into it and you're like, wow, I was totally wrong. Um, I need to pivot very quickly. Um, or it can be, uh, wow, I'm actually solving a problem that's really needed in the space. And, and I think that Pedal Fast has um, quickly been able to gain some traction because, frankly, the, the problem that we're solving um, is there and it's not going anywhere and it's only getting worse and worse. So, um, you know, Pedal Fast is an outsourced sales and trade marketing agency that uh, allows brands to what I call flex up. So overnight, um, if you're, uh, you look like a rosin guy, uh, maybe some, some brand and, uh, you know, rosin extracts, if you're trying to get that into the market, um, to be able to say, I have 40 to 50 people in the street overnight to be able to represent you, not only on sell in, we have a 13 person sales force continuing to hire, look to have a 20 person sales force by the end of the year. Um, to then have a, a trade team of uh, field reps of, of over 35 to be able to talk about velocity. You're talking about an organization that can now um, scale brands throughout the state of California. And, and we like to think that we're about brand building first and top line revenue second, right? We want to make sure that we connect with consumers and then that, um, and then revenue is a byproduct of, you know, distribution and, and connecting with consumers. So um, I always tell people, you're going to need our infrastructure one way or another. You can look at CAN, you can look at Jeter, um, two groups that have similar infrastructure to us. They've done it on their own. Obviously that that's expensive, uh, but they've done a great job in doing that. Um, not everybody can do that, uh, can do that, right? So uh, we've been able to build this infrastructure um, and, and take some things from spirits um, in my background, take some things from food in our background um, and apply it. But I think more importantly than anything, um, we've been able to acquire some of the best talent in the space to get on, uh, on the team and, 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 and strategize and grow brands. So there certainly have been third-party sales teams before and, and distributors in the cannabis industry. What what was wrong with them? What was broken about? 
Oh man, I, I don't know that it was wrong. I think sometimes it starts with like in cannabis, what's the timing, right? Um, I've had some success in, in cannabis when it was just all about timing. I've had some failures when it was all about timing. I think that uh, self-distribution has broken down. I, I think retailers have got starting to get a little bit more mature. And the days of saying I have 15, 1099 reps out in the street, like that doesn't get the job done anymore. You need full-time employees. You need strategy. You need data. You need tech. You need all of these pieces combined. I mean, for us, when we get a new placement on a brand, we're in that store within 72 hours following up with bud tender training and, and uh, marketing materials, right? And that's all automated because we need to scale it. And, and that's really just a playbook from, from my liquor days. So I think it's a big thing about timing and then, and then really the commitment and the investors to say, you know what, I believe in this. Here's the capital. Go build this type of organization because I, I really believe in the model. So uh, we have a great lead investor in, in Merida Capital who has supported me from day one. Um, and, and Merida Capital has been, uh, you know, we've raised about $5 million to date, and they're about half of that. So um, the combination of, of those investors combined with advisors, uh, we have a group of C-level executives in the wine and spirits space that have come on board as advisors and like, showing us how to do this, but certainly they've been able to do it. So I think it's the talent, the timing, um, and then getting some early adopters. Space Coyote believed in us from day one. We're, we've now represented them from uh, for a year um, and certainly have grown their, uh, grown their uh, business significantly. Yeah, I guess, you know, one of my first questions as you're talking is just what is preventing brands from sort of using you when they're starting from scratch? And once they reach a critical mass of, of sales and uh, brand and everything that makes them known to the retailer from leaving you uh, when it's when it behooves them? Yeah. Um, so let's let's talk about the life cycle of a brand. We just we just launched uh, a a business called Pilot by Pedal Fast, um, simply because not every brand is ready for our, our core business. There's a lot of brands that think they're ready, but they're really um, actually in like proving out their thesis mode, right? And, and Pilot by Pedal Fast is what we call our incubator. Um, and that's where if you are a early brand, okay, and, and you are pre-revenue, you're small, you're trying to prove out your innovation, whatever it may be, we have a, a group of 50 of the top retailers in the state that take a two hour meeting with us guaranteed on a monthly basis and where we bring three or four brands in. So that is for us, that's like training camp. We want to see if brands have the, you know, the, the stones to be able to uh, deal with what we've been dealing with in cannabis for so long. Like there's ups, there's downs, there's supply chain issues. There's, can you just deal with some of the immaturity in the retail side of things? Um, and, and that's really our look, but we're also giving tremendous value to small brands to be able to get in front of MedMen, get in front of Grassdoor, get in front of Kaliva, get in front of all of these top retailers to see, is everything that you just pitched me on actually correct? Because I want to know from the retailer, do they actually like what you're selling, right? So, so that is our incubator. Uh, we just launched it this month. We have an initial group of brands that's going amazing. Um, and, and retailers are also like, Jason, this is a great business for us because I can't take a hundred emails. I can't take a hundred emails. I'm going to send people your way. You vet them and uh, 
you know, bring me the top of the top of the innovation of the small brands out there. So that is the incubator and the early stage adopters. For, from then, we'll take brands and then we'll move them into our accelerator after we get a good look at them. Okay. And then when we grow their brands, right, we're a piece. We are a piece. So I would tell you that um, a space coyote, for example, they had three employees when we started. They have four now, right? Um, but now they're getting to a point where they have gross profit dollars coming in. They're getting pretty sizable. Um, they can now hire to overlay us. And when you look at how Diageo overlays the Southern Wine and Spirits, it's not get rid of my sales agency, right? It, or my, my front of the house, right? It is adding pieces on your side to overlay us and make the combination stronger. And I think that's where uh, brands have to mature. And as more CPG leadership comes into the space, it's not, oh, I shipped uh, three pallets over to my distributor. It's going to be gone in a week, right? Like it doesn't work like that. And it's a, it's a collaboration. And when there's problems, we work through it together. And, and when there's success, we work through it together. So um, our job is to build the rest, best relationships as possible with retailers so that, you know, when Ben Kovacs gets his brand really crushing it out there and he's like, hmm, maybe I should take back a little bit of margin and do it myself, um, you're going to think twice because we really have such a strong relationship hold with these retailers. So the, the model sounds amazing, Jason. I, I just think, um, look, there's been third party sales before. There's been distributors before. I know you're using Navis. What was sort of wrong with the way it was before Pedal Fest? Yeah. So let, let's talk about two sides of things. Like if, if you're a brand and, and we all agree you need our infrastructure one way or another, there, there's a couple ways to get it, right? Build it yourself. I think we talked about Jeter. Uh, we talked about Can. They built it themselves. They've done a great job, like extremely impressive work. But if you're going to build it yourself, you better have some money behind you. Um, in a significant way, right? So that's number one. Number two, you can have your distributor do it for you, right? And, and we're gonna go into that in a second. Number three would be the food model, which is in natural food, you have a, a sales layer, right? And the distributor is simply taking you from point A to point B. Um, and then they have an overlay of a sales and marketing agency like us, right? So when you look at route to market strategy, and if you study this, let's talk about those three buckets. So do it yourself, okay? Believe that you can build a good sales team. If you do it yourself, it's going to cost you some money. Um, but I believe that model breaks down on the other side. Um, when you talk about scaling a distributor on your own, right, the ops and the just the idea of doing that as this industry grows, it just won't make sense long term. OK, but there has been some that have been sex successful on the sales side of things. Then you've got the full service distributor model. Right. Um, and everybody calls me about Kiva and Herbal. And what are you doing versus those two? And how is it different? Right. And, and then. Geez, those, I'm not sure those two groups like me all that much, but um, let's talk about full service distribution for a second. Okay, do you know what Southern Wine and Spirits, like a, a full service wine and spirits distributor, do you know what kind of margins they're taking from brands? I don't. 22 to 30% or more, okay? They take you from point A to point B, like all the distributors. They have 
monster sales teams. Then they have specialized sales teams that overlay that. So it's not just like, okay, go sell into a liquor store. Then you've got wine teams, you've got trade teams, you've got craft beer teams, you've got craft whiskey teams, you've got all of these specialized overlays. Then you have marketing teams and, and more trade teams on top of that. So when you say full service, it's full service plus, right? But they're taking 22, 23, 25, 30 points. So they have the margin to be able to actually successfully win at doing it all. They've also been coddled by, by regulation to be able to do that, right? Like you talk about monopolies out there. You cannot just become a distributor in wine and spirits if you want to. Either the big have gotten extremely big or you physically cannot get a license to be able to do that, right? So I think margin stability within the wine and spirit space allows for full service distribution to actually work, okay? When you look at Herbal, when you look at Kiva, right? Forget about them, whether they do a good job or not for a second. Let's just talk about them um, as a model, right? Can you be a full service distributor and take, I don't know, 14, 15, 16, 18%? No, I, I don't believe you can because you physically don't have the margin to go from point A to point B and also build out all of the things and the bells and whistles that a Southern Wine and Spirits has. So then the question is, can you raise your margin? Uh, have you ever looked at cannabis margins? Like, fuck no, you can't raise your margins, right? Mm -hmm. Brands are dying as they, 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 they're here, right? They can, they, adding more cost to the brand is a killer. Why did the brand not have enough margin? Because there's not enough infrastructure, right? And I wanna talk about that in a second too, because that I believe is about the switch, okay? I, I think it's gonna switch very soon. I think it's already starting to switch with flower prices coming down. But if you went to a brand and says, I'll be a full service distributor for you, I'll do it all for you. You gotta pay me 25%. They're like, cool, 25, I'm only making 20, like I'm negative, right? So I don't think there's the margin on the brand side. And I don't, because of that, I don't think the the distributor can go and command a 22 to 30% margin to be able to build out a full service solution. So to me, that cuts out the wine and spirits full service distributor and says, okay, route to market is not going to work that way. And that's where you go to food. Okay. And in the food world, yes, you have full service distribution, except it's on two different balance sheets. Okay. Two companies are handling it. So you have distributors that are really focused on taking you from point A to point B. And then you have outsourced sales agencies that are not trying to do everything, not trying to do all of the distribution and warehousing and scale that type of business. What they're doing, I apologize, there's some on the distri distribution side in food, everybody does what they do best because you cannot scale if you're doing everything. So we do sales and trade marketing, Nabis does warehousing and distribution right? And the separation of the two allows us to focus on exactly what we do best and not have to spend gazillions of dollars and, and risk going out of business, right? And, and when you just focus on what you can do best and you do it better than anybody else, you get more scalable, right? You get more profitable, you, and then you're able to pass along those savings. So if you come through the pedal fast Navis model, right, you're going to pay anywhere between 
nine and 11, 12% with Navis, right? Can go down lower with volume. And then you're gonna pay 5% with us. So you're looking at all of the sales and trade activity that you need from a, a sales organization all of the back-end operation that you need from the distributor operation. And together you're looking at like 12 to 15%, right? And I think that allows a brand to be successful and, and we have the margin to be successful. So um, it's interesting. Is that true? I mean, at 5%, you're talking about having a pretty big team and obviously growing. Is that a slim margin for you? Um, so the way that we work is is we have a, a floor of $15,000. So it's $15,000 or 5% of your revenue, whichever is greater. So if you're a smaller brand, you're going to have to pay $15,000. Now, when people balk at that, I go, cool. Um, $15,000 is like one and a half good salespeople. You're getting 40 people in the street. So like, I don't know how you're going to win that argument. Um, and if, frankly, if you balk at that, like good luck paying slotting and paying all the things that you got to do to get in the, in the game. So um, that's a good weeding out process for us on the brand side. But um, I think this model gives everybody an opportunity to win and, and we continue to focus on sales and trade marketing and just getting better and better and better um, at doing just that. Who is, who's the next space coyote? Like I know you're so in love with Scott over there and his model, he seems to be one of the only brands that is actually producing a 40 plus percent or so gross margin is, is my guess without actually having licenses, without being plant touching who as flower prices come down. And of course, you know, manufacturing options continue to open up for things like gummies and vapes and other stuff. How can someone replicate what Scott's doing in a different segment of the market than infused, re, uh, infused pre-rolls? And what is that in your mind? So there's there's a lot there in that question. Let, let's talk about like just the ability for the asset light model to win at scale and, and in all different categories. Um, think why has everybody built infrastructure early on, right? Because the cost, if we're gonna go buy wholesale weed at $2,000 a pound, I can put $10 million into a grow and be able to get it at $600 a pound or $400 a pound, or even less depending on the style of growth. So it made so much sense because that Delta is so wide to go and build the infrastructure. Well, now what's happening, right? Now you're seeing way too much infrastructure has been built, supply and demand, you have flower prices plummeting. So now if I came to you guys and said, you got $10 million to go build a grow, and you can get $800 a pound after you spend that $10 million, or you can go buy on the wholesale market for $1,100, $1,200. The delta's shrunk, right? That is giving asset light businesses the ability to play ball with the vertical integrated operators in the space. Um, Glasshouse, like I, I see the monstrosity that they just bought and just built. Like, that's great. I don't know who needs weed. Like we can all go get a ton of flour. Um, what is that going to do to the market? Number one. And then number two, what does that do to their model when you're looking at flour prices plummeting before your eyes? Yes. You're going to be the lowest cost, no doubt, but I got a good feeling that whatever you predicted, you're going to sell that flour at it's a lot less than, than what you had thought it was going to be a year ago. So I think there's now more risk on that infrastructure purchase than um, actually spending that $10 million on marketing. 
right? Um, and marketing your product. So I guess that's phase one of the conversation. Uh, phase two of the conversation is why has Scott been successful? Um, Space Coyote, yes. Um, I, I, I love their brand. Like when I look at Scott and Libby, the founders of Space Coyote, and like I get on Zoom calls with them and, you know, no offense, guys, it looks a lot prettier than, than you. They're like in Hawaii. They have a background. Scott's hair is flowing. Libby's hair is flowing. They're like, this is like what you think about when you see weed. You know what I'm saying? And I believe that's highly marketable. Um, and then you combine it. And, and when I got to know Scott and Libby a little bit more, I'm like, Okay, so this guy is an MIT grad, right? He's got more degrees than I can even like count. Um, he created before this a device to like go to a restaurant and see if your food is gluten free or not, right? Like this is easy for him, all right? The guy, I, I don't even like talking to him all that much because I don't feel that smart after I get done with those conversations. But he, is extremely smart and he identified infused free will category as a place where he could get margin early on right and those margins are eroding um as that pre-roll category that infused pre-roll category gets more and more um difficult right but he identified infused pre-rolls way early on in the process and went and went and got in uh scaled that business before it got you know, uh, highly, highly competitive. For me, I'm looking at rosin right now. I'm looking at solventless extracts. I believe that that's the future of concentrates. Um, we can all get live resin whenever we want, wherever we want right now. Um, I want to see who can scale solventless to a price point that allows consumers to, to go adopt. So I'm looking at that next. Um, so highly interested in, in solventless. Um, you know, from an edible standpoint, uh, differentiation is, is 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 what we're looking for. I like quick technology a lot. Um, we we sell the Wana portfolio, and, and and their quick technology is is second to none. Um, as far as like controlling the high, um, but uh, outsource brands. Have you guys seen Pilgrim Soul? I'm not. You got to look up Pilgrim Soul. Pilgrim Soul, I just had a, a my first call with um, the founder, Sean. I mean, this guy is selling 1.5 million journals, right, a month on Amazon called Pilgrim Soul, like journals. Um, and I'm probably butchering this because I only had one intro call with this guy. And his brand is all about creativity. And he's backed into cannabis and he's a top selling product in MedMen. He's a top selling product in Sweet Flower. And now he's proven his concept where we're going to take it um, to the next level. So um, I'm, I'm looking at, at that brand as something that could be, you know, that, that next one who's very asset like. So project like the future for Space Coyote or one with this sort of asset light models kind of your poster child right like what you want other brands to be that that come from pedal fast what does that mean for other states or limited license states where you know frankly they can sell whatever they want to put on those shelves yeah this is this is a hot button for me so i apologize if i if i get a little crazy here good um, that's what i was looking for uh mso's are building brands on the beach right 
And we're in a knife fight here in, in California. And I'm from Philly. Ben's from York. We're both, we understand the Pennsylvania market to a degree. We have friends back there, right? My boys are happy just to go in. Like, they're ecstatic that there's just a dispensary to go to, right? A dispensary that actually has weed in it is, like, even more exciting, right? So does it have to be the best brand? Does it have to be the best packaging? Does it have to actually connect with you as a consumer? No, just the ability to get weed is enough, okay? And the MSOs, now they have their own problems, don't get me wrong. They Building infrastructure, capitalizing that, like that is big time business. Um, but once they get that, the challenge isn't selling the weed because supply and demand is the whole other side of the equation, right? Like everybody's excited about New York, but um, it's going to take three or four years just to build enough infrastructure to supply Manhattan, let alone the whole state of New York um, with enough cannabis for that, for that to go forward. So um, for me, I believe that as states mature, right, brands are going to become more and more important. And if that is the case, and, and I think that would be hard to argue. It would then flow back to the state of California because um, California weed is no different than Napa Valley wine, right? Or, or California wine, right? And if you have the ability to go into a dispensary in Philadelphia and you have whatever the East Coast brand's pre-roll is, or you've got a space coyote that you've been able to see from California coming across this, the, the country, you're gonna pick space coyote time after time after time, right? No differently than we do with wine. So long-term, I believe that West Coast brands that flow across the country East is going to be um, the biggest challenge for MSOs to combat long, long-term. Um, but also the biggest uh, opportunity for um, California brands long-term. I'm, I'm really interested to see how Lowell Farms does um, in Massachusetts and Illinois, right? I don't know if they're gonna have enough supply to put up the big time numbers, but when you look at velocity, if you look at whatever is in that store, I bet you Lowell Farms goes into a store and sells out like that, right? And uh, so I'm very interested in Lowell Farms. I think if you're a California operator, you want success for Lowell um, because that would really help to showcase why you're playing in the knife fight right now and making no money or little money. It's because you have an opportunity to resonate across the country more so than um, a brand on the East Coast. I think one of these big questions is as we license brands into new states, you know, they're going to have different source materials than they would in California. How do you maintain that quality? How do these brands, I mean, brand is synonymous with consistency and trust, right? When you go to a Marriott, when you go to McDonald's, you know what you're going to get. A Space Coyote in Nevada is potentially a lot different than it is in California, yeah? Yes and no. Um, I think you have to go category by category with that. Right. Flour is going to be the most challenging, given that each region has different climate, has different types of grows and different regulation. Like you physically just can't grow the same weed in Florida that you can here with the regulation around indoor greenhouse. Um, so you have to look category by category. Gummy, you know, that's the more normalized 
supply chain to like a normal candy manufacturer. So I think that it's, uh, or beverage pretty consistent. Beverage is going to be consistent. It's going to be flour and and all the eyeballs are going to be on that flour brand of how do you take that across the country? So I think there's a couple things going for the brands. Number one, the further east you go, the less normalized cannabis is, right? And uh, does the average consumer or the new consumer even know what that means, okay? Um, like, can you tell um, if, it, if there's a minor difference? Like I smoke a good amount of weed and um, ice can barely tell the difference between like indoor and light depth and, and, and good outdoor, right? So um, I don't know that the, the normal consumer can tell, but I think it's when you talk about brand building and consistency, um, I think there's gonna have to be some sort of genetics that flow across the country. Um, and as those genetics flow across the country, that's how you're gonna get some sort of normalization, whether gelato is grown, um, in the same exact climate as, as California, that's probably unlikely, but I think you can still get the same uh, flavor profiles, the same bag appeal um, to a degree where consumers aren't gonna be able to tell as much. Can you see it to the extent like, you know, you can only have champagne from the champagne region? Are, are we headed there? Is like the terroir and sort of origin story gonna happen for California? I think it's going to depend on how regulations play out. I mean, if you're able to go across state lines at some point, I think California will try to make that happen and push that in marketing like crazy. Um, If you can't, you'll probably suppress that to a degree because you're just not going to be able to do it and bring it across. Right. So uh, we'll have to see how regulation shakes out. Um, We'll also have to see how indoor shakes out because um, while fl- outdoor flour in the short term is getting crushed um, from a pricing perspective, um, I could see that switching over time with, with where the country and the world is going with um, sustainability, like indoor weed is not the most sustainable thing on the, in the world, right? So I could see that flipping the other way. And, and also, who's going to be the marketer that actually shows people and connects with consumers that um, outdoor flower can is is like the organic staple of uh, what we see in natural food. So um, I think outdoor flower will have its day again. Um, but today, man, it's 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 a challenge for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I think often like people that are especially newbies, what they really need is outdoor or mixed light, right? Like they need something that's less potent anyway. I guess people need to explain that to them. Um, And does it even matter? Like the, at the end of the day, like some of my best experience has been with like this 710 Labs 15% pre-roll is like insane because it's got insane terpene content. It's, I'm not on my ass, but I'm still having a great time. So um, frankly, I didn't know that before I got in the, in the cannabis, right? Like four or five years ago. So it just takes a large amount of education and, um, it, that's going to take years, man. I can't imagine that, uh, when prohibition in, in alcohol, like people just knew 
everything about everything about spirits, right? It takes some time. It takes marketing and um, it takes a lot of money to educate people. Uh, I think all this is good and makes sense long-term, right? I think there's no question that brands are going to win. You know, there's, there's no question that people are going to start buying cannabis on terpene profile and not just THC percentage. I think a little bit more near term though, and this is my fear, I guess, or thesis. And you tell me where I'm wrong, Jason, we are going to have over the next 12 months, I think there's going to be a massive washout in California. And the reason I say that is because as you've alluded to already, there's been an unbelievable amount of money poured into grows, outdoor mixed light. And of course, indoor, we're seeing prices plummet. A lot of these companies in order to build these massive grows have obviously taken on a ton of debt. You don't build 30, $50 million growing facilities with you know your own cash most of the time. So there's a lot of pro formas out there that required $2,000 a pound flour. They were still making money at $1,500 a pound. But now when we see prices going for a thousand or 1200 or 1300 a pound and potentially even lower as we get into the winter, I think a lot of people are in a lot of trouble. But then when you take it a step farther, now you've got people taking indoor bags to retailers instead of trying to sell a $20 jar. They're saying, hey, buy a $12 jar or a $10 bag or you know whatever their, their sort of absolute floor is to try to win that shelf space. Now it puts the retailers in a tough spot because even though their margin percentage is the same, their actual just nominal value of that sale instead of making a $40 spread on an eighth, they might only be making a $10 spread on that eighth. And so they're not seeing four times as many customers to make up for that. And so it feels like the consumers winning in this equation as prices plummet, but both the farmers and retailers are kind of going to get fucked because the fixed costs are going to eat them alive. So am I wrong or, or what am I missing? And how is 75% of these companies not going out of business? Yeah, you're spot on. Um, I cannot tell you, and you're, you're, you're probably the same way. I'll have three today of farmers that call me like, I'll, whatever price you want, can you take all this flour and turn it into cash, right? And, and that's, that's not a great thing for the industry. Uh, I, I think that retails will hold a little bit to your point about like prices plummeting. Um, the retailers don't necessarily wanna sell cheaper weed. Right. So I'm not I'm not seeing or there'll be a lag at least um, for, I think, retail to drop like overnight. I think you'll see more uh, like BOGO action, like just getting more flour out in the market. You know, I would always suggest keep your price high, you know, and 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 give out free goods rather than than dropping your price because it's never coming back up. But uh Plus products, I'm sure you guys saw in the news, um, I guess some sort of receivership type of situation there. Um, there's gonna be more. Um, and I think going back to Scott and Space Coyote, stay profitable, stay patient. Not every business goes from zero to a hundred overnight. Um, there's gonna be opportunities for folks like that um, and unfortunately, the guys that sold gold and thought, that, you know, if they build it, they will come like that's not going to be the case. And, and there's going to be a number of casualties that will be somebody's opportunity. But um, I wish I felt bad, man. I've been through this six years and uh, I've probably been through that cycle three times. And it's about to happen again. I mean, 
I was, shit, I sold my company to Kushko Holdings. I thought my, my life had totally changed. And, and then I saw that stock go from five to 50 cents. And it was kind of out of my control of all, of all that. So uh, there's going to be a lot of that happening. And, and what that means is there's a lot of learnings and maturity and, and people get better. So ultimately this will help that next phase, but um, it's inevitable that there's going to be a lot of people that go out of business. Um, one of the other things that's really different about California is all the new direct consumer offerings. Um, I know you have some plans to get into that game a little bit, but is it too simple to say that too much money has gone into retail and that at some point we're going to all buy this like we buy everything else, e-commerce and Amazon? Is that too simple? Um, I think that long-term, yes, but there's enough new consumers coming into this. I think there's enough like, I want to go see it type of thing. Um, there's also, I, I think direct-to-consumer is winning today because the state of California, there's just, and it's not even the state, it's more on the city level with how Prop 64 was laid out. Um, there's not enough retail. So I live in Laguna Beach. I got to drive 40 minutes to Santa Ana to get weed or I can have grass door be at my doorstep in 30 minutes. So like, which one am I going to do? Um, so I think as cities adopt retail, um, you'll start to see maybe that swing back the other way at the same time, from a brand perspective, the ability to touch consumers in a direct to consumer fashion is so much more valuable because when I was building my beef jerky company, I could get details from, from Whole Foods and Publix and Spins data, and you could see exactly what's moving and how it's moving. And cannabis retailers are reluctant to give you that data. Well, with direct-to-consumer, you're going to see exactly who's buying it, why they're buying it, when they're buying it. And that should dictate a lot of your marketing activity. So it's highly valuable to the brands. I think we're way too early. You know, a retail store account will probably three, four, five X over the next five years. And that will make it much more convenient. Um, you know, I can walk any direction right now and get liquor within three blocks. Um, one day it will be like that. And it is like that in Denver, right? So as that happens, I think direct-to-consumer will, will get a little bit of, of push the opposite direction. Interesting. So is that something that you want for your brands? How much is that a conversation with, with people coming on? If you don't have a direct-to-consumer strategy, number one, you're not going to raise money because I've never had a conversation about brand building and an investor not say, what are you doing with direct-to-consumer? Whether they even know what that means or not, just with Uber and, and, and uh, Drizzly and all these monster exits all around um, all different kinds of space. Instacart is a monster now, right? You better know at least a strategy around it. Um, like I'm the last person to throw out like MBA, you know, bullshit textbook stuff, but like omni-channel is like this whole new special word that everybody is saying um, that's smarter than me. And uh, it, it means you better have a strategy for all the different channels. Um, and uh, Grassdoor, Amuse, Ginger, um, they've provided a platform for brands to touch consumers. And if you're a brand builder at heart, that's the most important thing possible. 
Um, so yeah, we're Space Coyote launches their site this week or this month, I believe. Um, another brand of ours, Smarty Plants, launches a site. Uh, Wana's looking at it. So um, I'm excited to just learn from it. Frankly, and we're we're in first inning, but like just me as like a go-to-market guy, a distribution guy, it's just cool that we can sell weed online actually, right? Super so, cool. Um, to play that game is, is pretty cool because two, three years ago, that wasn't even a thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think in some ways, like we're going to see who the real brands are, right? There aren't a lot of big, well-known brands today, even in, inside of California. And I think when they have to do most of their own marketing, and convert people on their own website, we're going to see like, are these brands worth anything? I love asking brands what their cost of acquisition is on, on consumers. <laughs> and they just look at me like, what does that even mean? And I'm like, okay. Um, so yeah, they're going to have to sophisticate themselves very quickly. Um, but there's a lot of talent now in, in this space that knows how to do this pretty well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you touched on fundraising a little bit. You got a background in this space, so you must know a lot of investors from Kush and, and prior to that. How has that process been in this moment, um, that fundraising process? Um, it's been great. I mean, I can't tell you how much Merida Capital has meant to my career. Um, Mitch Barukowitz is somewhat of a polarizing figure. If you've Mitch has been on the show before too, yeah. Yeah, Mitch is like uh, love him or hate him type of guy. I love him. Um, he backed me in my first venture and and we sold that to Kushko. He was one of the backers of Kushko Holdings. Um, and and what I'll tell you about Merida is whether it's good or bad, you get an investment from Merida, right? they've got your back. And if you, you know, anybody who's been in business, it's not always roses. Um, and they understand that. And, and when you have tough conversations, they've always been there to support me. So I think having them um, here behind us has been extremely valuable. Um, but I think everybody does now believe that brands are going to win long-term. Mm-hmm. And that, that basic thesis from a very macro perspective is pushing um, it's pushing investors toward brand building. And I think we have a very differentiated story, the way that we're looking at brand building, the way that we're looking at risk. Um, you know, if a brand comes into our world and they go out of business, like I, I don't, yeah, it sucks. You know, I have to go find another brand, but like, I don't have the risk that a brand owner has. We're really supporting them, but we're getting all the value of their growth. So um in investors have been plentiful for us um but uh certainly continue to to get better and and um you know show the story of of uh you know what we've been believing in and and the last thing i'll say is investors like talented teams and um you know, I've made a lot of mistakes, but I think I've been able to get some really smart people around our business. And, and that really helps when you go to raise money. Mm-hmm. And what's the exit story in those investment meetings? I mean, what's what's ideal for you? Where Where's the future? Um, I don't know. And I think that's OK. Um, we're one year in. I, I think that we 
have put ourselves into a position where we want to create value and, and that value is being able to have the best relationships and the best uh, pipeline into retail, whether that, that be delivery or retailers. And if you have those relationships with a strong sales and marketing organization, that's going to be highly valuable and somebody will want that, right? Um, I don't know where regulation is going to shake out. I don't know how state by state is going to shake out, but I got a good feeling no matter how it shakes out, sales, marketing, and relationships at retail are going to be highly valuable forever. Um, and that's the way that we look at it. So, you know, may, we could become a, a brand house like a Diageo. We could be the front of the house for um, a distributor. Um, you know, there's a number of different angles that, that we can go. Uh, but uh, I think having the best relationships at retail um, is what we continue to focus on. And, and that will provide tremendous value to an acquisition or just, just keep crushing. Well, I think that's as good a place to start to wrap up as any here. Um, just a couple questions about you. Like what's your personal relationship with cannabis like today? How has that evolved through the years? I have a, I have a crazy story. I, I mean, I, I'm from Philadelphia. I played sports my whole life. Uh, played college basketball at Bucknell. So like cannabis was not really a part of me as a um, person um, in, in my younger years. And then in college, while, you know, everybody was smoking around me, you know, I would get piss test all the time. So that wasn't really an option at that point. Um, and then out of college, I, I was in the wine and spirit space and I grew up around the wine and spirit space. So, um, you know, that was that was me. Um, I rarely drink anymore. Um, I, I, I'm not the type of person that can can smoke and work. That's for damn sure. But um, my me personally, I'm like the guy that I can never stop. Uh, my brain doesn't turn off. Um, when I'm building a company, like I'm, I'm a maniac and cannabis for me is like the only thing that allows me to be normal and maybe like go to dinner and not check my phone and have a great conversation and get out of what I love doing, but I need some balance in my life. So, um, I've got three kids. Um, I'm like the weed guy in Laguna beach. Like, uh, so it's, it's interesting to say the least here. Um, but I, um, I have really moved from, from alcohol to cannabis. And for me, it's a, it's a better tool for me to, to relax and, and uh, have some balance in my life. And flowers, edibles, vapes. What are you, what are you into? I am a flower guy. Um, the Wana Quick Gummies is the first edible that I'm like, I can really mess with this. Mm -hmm. um, ben likes the Space Gems a lot. That's Ben shit. Space Gems. Um, you know, unless I'm on a 16-hour flight to Hong Kong, uh, vape really isn't my thing. <laughs> Don't tell American Airlines that. Um, but uh, I think... I, I think um, there's so many cool form factors. Like, dude, we, we sell this thing called my high. My high is water soluble powder, like in a stick. And you put that in an iced tea and like you're golden. So 
going on a hike and putting that in a water is a little bit different than, than like I see some of my friends bringing out the Puffco like mid hike. Like I'm not that guy. Um, so I think there's all different kind of innovations coming. And, and one of the coolest things about our business is that we're getting about 20 new innovative brands coming through our website a week. Um, and they're from all over the country and, and we get a lot of samples. So, uh, get to try a lot of different things, but at the, at the core of my consumption, it's going to probably be a, a pre-roll, um, or, or a nice bomb rip. Yeah. Flowers for sure. Um, which a lot of people agree. Um, you know, what's interesting though, man, if we got together, we would not bring a six pack of can together. Right. We just wouldn't. It just we would we would roll a joint, a blunt. That would just be us like hanging out together. The East Coast. It's different. If you brought if we got together and we were just in Philly and I brought a can, we'd be like, dude, this is the coolest thing ever. Like, let's let's drink them together. So I'm I think innovation is going to have a better time or some better success on the East Coast than the West Coast, just because there isn't that culture. There isn't like let's have a joint by the fire. It's not like that. So um, I'm interested to see those form factors that like aren't crushing it here. I think they'll crush it on the East coast. Well, I just spent two weeks in New York and I got to tell you the tolerance level there certainly is a lot different than in California. <laughs> so maybe the low dose beverages and edibles will be more successful there. Um, how can we're also, our- not, we're also not gated by the legacy right here, as you know, the bud tenders and the buyers are these people who are massive consumers, typically looking to get really, really high because they've been getting high their whole lives. And they're not going to have that uh, impediment on the East coast and in the Midwest. Yep. Agreed. How can our audience help you, Jason? By space coyote, obviously, uh, by Wana, obviously. Um, but I think giving brands the opportunity to connect with them. Um, I, I, brands in this space don't have the normal tools. We can't do things that alcohol brands can do. We, you know, you can't go to a bar and have the Captain Morgan girl and Mr. Captain Morgan there and, and you're hanging out. So, um, I, I think being open-minded to what brands are, are pitching to you, number one, they're working hard as shit and going through hoops that nobody should ever have to go through to connect with you. Um, and I think just giving your friend, uh, getting your friend over the hump of going into a dispensary is the best thing that we can all do because it's not scary. Like I, I talked to, uh, some women in Laguna who are like, look at me, like uh, it's a porn shop or something like, no, it's just, it's actually pretty cool in the dispensary. And I bet you'd find something that you like. So, um, I think bringing a friend into a dispensary is probably the best thing that we all can do. Good stuff. Well, this was great, Jason. Thank you so much, Ben. It was a good uh, first attempt we made at it. And thanks for listening, guys. It's been awesome. All right, guys. I'll talk to you soon. See ya.